Welcome. If this is your first time, welcome. It's so great to have you here. If this is your 1,000th time, welcome. It's so great to have you here as well. Um, so yes, we are looking at this Advent series called I Didn't See This Coming. And so if you have your Bibles there, your hard copy version or your digital copy, please turn to Matthew one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And as you open it and you look at that list of names and you think... I think she's made a mistake. This is the most boring part of Matthew. It's just a list of names. I haven't made a mistake. We're looking at the most boring part of Matthew today. So (laughs) we are looking at the genealogy of Jesus because actually this is Matthew's um, really key message right at the beginning of his gospel about the type of Messiah Jesus was going to be and what his kingdom was about. And so we're going to look at that today and we're going to do that through looking at a few key stories because there's a few characters in this genealogy that were quite surprising to be in there and you might already know who they are but you'll see shortly. Um, But yeah, Jesus' genealogy was a way of getting the reader or the hearers ready for this surprising ministry and this surprising Messiah. And so if we look at the genealogy, and you'll have it in front of you, but I've got it up here. It's in three sections. This is the first section. In this section, there's 14 generations in each, and we know this because Matthew mentions it at the end of this, but there's 14 in each. Um, And our first section is representative of the patriarchs of Israel. And then our second section, this represents the kings. So we're actually looking at a history. Matthew gives the history of Israel. So these are the kings. And then we have our third section, which represents the exile of Israel and some of the prophets that were involved. Um, So we have our history of Israel. And Matthew's really integral because we got to get, kind of know who Matthew was writing to, right? He was writing to a Jewish community, a Jewish Christian community. And this community were really, um, they were searching for what their identity was. They were in no man's land a little bit because, because they were Jews, but they were now followers of Christ. They'd been kicked out of Jewish community because he'd reject, they'd rejected the Mosaic law. That's what they had been perceived to be, even though they believed Jesus was a fulfillment. So they were ostracized from that community. The Gentile church was gaining in numbers and growing, but the Jews felt like they had their Jewishness and their culture was being taken away and they weren't really a part of that. They didn't know how to be a part of that. So they're in this no man's land. So Matthew writes this gospel that's this real encouragement to the Jews to kind of say, yep, Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the ro- of the royal line of, of David. Um, he is the f- fulfillment of all of the law. He's all of these things, our history. He's fulfilling it. He's a part of it. Uh, but he's all, she, he also writes a, this kind of encouragement to also remember to be looking at who did Jesus reach out to. And a lot of that was that crossing of those cultures and reaching out. So Matthew had a, quite a few reasons for writing his gospel, his letter, Um, and particularly this genealogy. And we're going to look at some of the stories in this genealogy pretty briefly. And you might have noticed that there were some yellow names highlighted because all of these names carry stories with them and they carry the history of Israel. But some of these characters are a little bit more surprising than others. And these are the women. 
we have five women mentioned in this genealogy. And this is really surprising because for this time in which this was written, women were not considered in any genealogy. Nobody gave a rip. It was a patriarchal society. Women didn't count. But here, Matthew's included five female names. And so we kind of have to pay attention to that and think, well, why did he include five women? Women had no place, so why are they in the genealogy of Jesus? By listing these women, Matthew is reminding the reader about the very different and very significant ministry of Jesus and what his kingdom was all about because they have really amazing stories. So we're going to quickly look at these stories and what they reveal about the ministry of Jesus. So our first woman there, you'll notice, is Tamar. And hands up who knows the story of Tamar. I'm going to gauge how much do I need to go into detail. All right, 50-50. Okay, so here's the quick rundown. We have 12 tribes of Judah, 12 brothers. Judah, and we know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Judah's a very significant tribe. Judah, when he's first starting out, he moves away from all of his family. He marries a Canaanite woman, which is like a no-no. He kind of forsakes his father's faith, um, has three sons, has to marry his eldest son off, chooses this woman named Tamar. And Tamar as well is a Canaanite woman. So here we go. We've got a Gentile woman, the first Gentile woman in Jesus' genealogy, in a Jewish genealogy, Gentile woman. Now, Judah does the wrong thing by Tamar. Um, his sons were quite evil and the first son dies and so she gets married off to the second son. The second son dies because he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So she's meant to be promised to the third son. But Judah, he's quite a deceiving character. And he says, oh, look, he's not old enough yet. I'm going to send you back to your family. And then when he's old enough, you can come back and marry him. But Judah was like, this woman's cursed. She ain't coming near my third son. And so she gets sent away. But in the sending away, she gets stripped of her whole identity. She is no longer a part of that family she got married into. She's no longer really a part of her father's family that she's got to go back to. She's separated from then. She's marginalised. She has no um, social standing. Her econ like any economic wealth, anything to her, all been taken away. She's got nothing and she's left like this. And she's left like this for a period of time. And she finds out that this third son, he's old enough, but Judah never sends for her. And she gets mad. But she gets in a righteous, it's like a righteous anger. She's like, hang on, this isn't right. Everything's been taken away from me. And Judah, who's meant to be the righteous one, right? This godly insider man, he's meant to be part of these tribes of Israel. He's denied her that. And so Tamar takes things into her own hands and she goes and she disguises herself and knows that Judah's going to be going on this journey up to a particular city for a, a shearing festival. And she tricks him into sleeping with her because she knows what kind of guy this is. And in doing so, she falls pregnant because she knows this is actually the righteous thing. This is what's owed to me, a son from this family. Now, Judah finds out about it, doesn't know that that's the person that he's been with, holds her to a different account of righteousness to himself because she should be put to death, not himself, for the adultery. And so she gets dragged out 
but is able to reveal that Judah is the father of her child. And what we have in this story, Judah says, and this is the crux of the story, it revolves around this question of what it means to live righteously because Judah says that this woman is more righteous than I am. Judah, the insider, the one who's a part of this Abrahamic covenant, the line, he said, hang on, I've acted really unrighteously and unjust and she is more right than I am. And so we have this example of Tamar, who is this righteous person in the sight of the Lord. The Canaanite woman, who uses pretty devious means, dubious means, is more righteous than Judah. And what we have here is this outsider who does more for the future of God than what the insider Judah has done. And this reveals to us in Jesus that he also reveals a new righteousness that is for those who are marginalized. In fact, he instructs his disciples to reach outside of the boundaries and include the Gentiles. He goes on to illustrate on the Sermon of the Mount, he sums it all up in love your neighbor. This idea of what righteousness looks like to love your neighbor. And so as Tamar's actions served to critique Judah's self-serving um, attitude that actually prohibited and denied people things, so Jesus also in Matthew offers the same critique to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were meant to be the righteous ones but had denied people access to God and had denied them the ability to walk in righteousness. So this is our first indication of the type of Messiah Jesus is, that justice and righteousness are revealed through Tamar's story. And then we have Rahab. And Rahab, she reveals the identity of the people of God because Jesus came to create this bigger kingdom than what the Jews had really considered. But we know that Rahab's story, again, raise of hands. Who's familiar with Rahab? You can do this. Yes, thank you. So Rahab, um, again, she was the outsider of outsiders. She lived in Jericho. She was a woman. She was a Canaanite and she was a prostitute. All of those things represented a real danger to Israel. She was considered this. This is why we have this law of ban when, when we go into Canaan, Canaan, we're going to kill everything that's there because of this type of culture, this type of person. But Rahab, she's this woman who these spies that are sent by Joshua are sent in to scope the city. Rahab's the one who hides them protects them from the king. And then Rahab does something really amazing in that it is actually her that quotes the promise of God's faithfulness to the Jews. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. When we heard of it, the, those in Jericho, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. These are Rahab's words. These were not any words that any of the Israelites spoke. Rahab reminds the spies, hey, remember, this is who you are. And then it's that message that the spies carry back to Joshua and it is they repeat verbatim what Rahab says, this Canaanite woman 
they repeat the faithfulness of God that's come out of her mouth and it's her faith that actually stirs the Israelites to go, cool, yep, we can take Jericho. I think that's pretty amazing. And so because of this, she's saved. But because of the law that they had, that they were meant to go in and kill man, woman, child, destroy everything that was from that was of these foreign people, Rahab knew, even in this moment, that she's actually condemned to death. There was no guarantee that she was going to survive. But because of her faithfulness to the Lord, they managed to save her and all of her family become part of the Israel community. The ultimate outsider becomes the insider and this inclusion of Rahab in Matthew points to Jesus' ministry where he continually restores and redeems the outsider and the ones who are not welcome. He restores identities. And for Matthew's community, this was a real um, integral way of reminding them that they were a part of this new community. This is who your identity is. You are part of this new community, but also this encouragement to make sure, hey, that we're also reaching out to those outside of our Jewish culture and those outside on the margin. So that's Rahab. And then we have Ruth. I reckon Ruth might be the most familiar story. Hands up for Ruth. We know Ruth. Yeah, great. Um, Ruth demonstrates and gives a signal for the loving kindness and covenant promise of God. Again, we have a Gentile woman whose story illustrates and points to the ministry of the loving kindness and the covenant-keeping God that is revealed in Jesus. In Ruth, we find a woman who commits herself to her mother-in-law. So again, if you're not familiar with the story, Ruth um, is married um, to a man. She's a Moabite. Now, if you thought the Canaanites were bad, the Moabites were worse. They were excluded. The, uh, in the Old Testament, it said they were excluded from being able to congregate um, within any of Israel for 10 generations, unto the 10th generations. They were just like, you are not allowed to be a part of it. Naomi and her husband were, um, Jew, were Hebrew and they had moved during a famine to this land in Mo- in, um, where the Moabites were and Ruth marries into the family. Now Ruth's husband, he dies and Naomi, her mother-in-law, her husband is dead as well as her other son and Ruth offers her daughter-in-laws the chance to go back to their families and start again. Naomi's done, she's like, I'm going back to Bethlehem, I can't be here but Ruth stays behind and she commits herself to Naomi. And she says that beautiful, those beautiful lines, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people. And she commits herself to Naomi. And in her commitment to her mother-in-law, she binds herself to her. And in this commitment, she provides for Naomi and she goes to many lengths and she demonstrates this willingness to do whatever needs to be done to bring restoration back to Naomi. Ruth's generosity and kindness to her mother-in-law ultimately saves Naomi from poverty and gives her back children. Ruth's story illustrates the saving quality of the loving kindness of God. We have this image of God through Ruth, of this kindness that commits and goes this extra length to see those restored and saved. And so this inclusion of Ruth serves to point us to this merciful Messiah, who will go and stay and save. And then Bathsheba. Now, we've had these three Gentile women, um, and all of whom have furthered the history of Israel. 
and they reveal these amazing aspects of the kingdom of God. And then we come to verse 6 in our genealogy. And it says, And Jesse, the father of King David, and it ends this first little section. And then we have our new section. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba's name is not actually given here. What we hear is Uriah's wife. Now, to the reader, if three Gentile women weren't kind of enough of a shock, enough of a scandal, now here comes the big one. Because what Matthew does here is he reminds everybody, hey, remember that really bad thing David did? Remember all of his sin? Remember how it was like the catalyst to kind of our destruction? Matthew doesn't beat around the bush here. He doesn't just say Bathsheba when she's queen, when she's David's wife. She says Uriah's wife. Because what did David do? Well, David takes Bathsheba, doesn't do the right thing, gets her pregnant, and then kills her husband. And then that baby dies. And so Matthew, it's not just this, oh, King David. It's, hang on, it's David. It's David when he sinned, when he caused pain, when he caused the events that started to lead to the demise of our kingdom. And so Matthew doesn't shy away from this. By using Uriah's name, he highlights the pain. He highlights the sin. And he draws attention to God's punishment of David and the consequences that followed. And we see through the genealogy, those kings, there are a lot of bad things that happened. But this mention of Bathsheba is not purely just to say, here's all the terrible stuff. What it actually points to is God's mercy and forgiveness. His mercy outweighs his judgment. Bathsheba is restored. She becomes David's wife and then they give birth to Solomon. And Solomon goes on to be one of the greatest kings of Israel. And it's God's mercy and forgiveness that are then told and are the things that are sung about. David goes on and repents and he sings about the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And so Bathsheba's story shows this, at the borders of death there's always life. And God's always bringing back life. And then we come to Mary. And Mary is where we kind of have the, the unseen who are seen. In Jesus' ministry, he always comes to those. Those who are on the outskirts, those who are not seen. And he gives them identity. And he shows that God is with them. At the conclusion of the genealogy, we read... And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Joseph is mentioned here. You'll notice he's not actually called the father of Jesus. He's Mary's husband. Joseph adopts Jesus into his family. But Mary is referenced. And here we have this young, poor girl from a really, as Mike was saying last week, you know, Nazareth, it's a nothing town. Mary was a poor girl. She didn't come from royalty. It wasn't the royal line. Again, this was a shock as well. It wasn't from this royal family that Jesus was born. And much like Bathsheba, Mary's pregnancy places her on the margins of society. She was an unmarried pregnant woman. 
young woman. There was a lot of talk. In fact, it's why Matthew actually includes the genealogy, because there was still discussion around, you know, if this was written around 80 AD, still discussion around whether Jesus was legitimate. It's why he includes this genealogy, because Mary would have faced those accusations. But she becomes the bearer of this Davidic line, a son of David, the royal son of David. And once again, Matthew's audience, we are reminded of the humble beginnings of Jesus and that he was not born into the royal ruling family, but to a young girl and he had an adopted father. And Jesus' origins speak of who he came to save. This was not the origin story that the Jews expected. It's why so many people just didn't believe he was the Messiah. This type of origin is not what they were expecting. They were expecting a king to ride on in and be of all of the, the ruling, powerful people. But Jesus' origins were different to that. They didn't see a Messiah coming that would come from a virgin birth with questions about his legitimacy. They didn't see a Messiah who would bring in a really different type of justice or righteousness to what the Pharisees really wanted to be about. They didn't see a Messiah who would reach out to the Gentiles, to the outcasts, to the poor, to the sick, and include them into his ministry, even the Romans themselves. They didn't see righteousness and faithfulness and loving kindness to be fulfilled on a cross. And I think the great hope and encouragement here for us is that Jesus, the Almighty God, He isn't afraid of being associated with the messiness of our human life. He has come from it. He lived in it. He bore it on the cross and he redeemed it. And I think the surprising nature, I didn't see this coming in the genealogy, is that we get the beautiful ministry of Jesus through a whole list of names. And it's the good news that he redeems and restores.